My name is Adebayo Alonge. I am co-founder and CEO of RxOl Incorporated. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Adebayo. Thank you, Andile. So what's more fun, founder or CEO? <laughs> <laughs> founder is, is more fun, right? Uh, CEO is more, uh, more work than being a founder. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so w- which of the two would you recommend? To someone you like <laughs> oh of course be a founder that's the that's the more exciting phase right when you ideate you build a team you you pitch right it's very different from being a ceo a ceo has to do the day-to-day management the um, the checking of results performance the performance appraisals the layoffs the hiring so it's uh, it's more of the more tedious job this is just me trying to figure out what sort of personality you have. Are you the type of person for whom once um, once your organization is at a certain stage in terms of sustainability, um, you you might step aside and have someone else run it and maybe stay on board as maybe a, a chairman or, or something like that? Yes, uh, I am still discovering my entrepreneurial persona, but it looks like there's a chance I'm more um, 60 40 split the way you have described. Okay. Okay. 64 being the kind of guy to not relish the, the CEO side of things. Oh, yes. I mean, I think I am more of a founder type person, um, ideating type person, and then running it to a certain point and then getting a, an executive person to run. I mean, it doesn't mean right. I can do the boat. I can do it. Um, I'm currently doing, doing it, right? But in terms of preference, right, it's it's more on the founder side. Yeah. Well, for for people who who count scholarly prestige as a thing, I'm sure looking at your CV, they wouldn't doubt that <laughs> <laughs> you have the chops. But I mean, um, there's often a lot more to it than that. Nevertheless, I thought it might be fun to start with that, but. In diving into your current chosen um, entrepreneurial pursuit, uh, help me understand why, for good reason, um, uh, multinational pharmaceuticals get a bad rap. Yes, um, primarily for two reasons. Um, The first is pricing. So, as you know, it takes um, easily over two decades to build and discover a viable drug pipeline. And this goes into sometimes billions of um, dollars to identify those useful molecules and bring them to market. So usually, I mean, in terms of the the IP system in the Western world, it's been sort of set up to protect these companies that do all of this grant work so they can recover their investments over a patent period, right? right. And doing, How long are these patent periods, roughly? Usually, it's between 10 to 15 years, Okay. Um, usually. And uh, what happens there is that uh, no sort of generics are allowed, um, no mm-hmm. other type of biosimilar products uh, are allowed during that protected period. And mm. obviously, once the the patent period begins to approach its end, you usually see a lot of lobbying by pharmaceutical companies to try and keep out the generics from coming in. You see um, a lot of um, factors that come to play just to keep those price levels and returns very high. So uh, people, people, I mean, the masses are sort of a bit wary. They understand that these guys need to recoup the investments, but they are also sort of upset that they would go all the way to keep those levels of profitability high even after the patent period is over right uh, that's just one bit bit of the of the pricing situation another one is that we've also recently seen a number of um of sort of finance people coming to the pharmaceutical space so to take for example um pharma bro screlly uh, who was recently convicted in the U.S. Um, he's he came in, bought a company that specialized in orphan drugs. Orphan drugs being those drugs that have very few number of people, usually hundred thousand 
people, patients or less, who buy it a year. And so for that reason, um, usually they have a sort of protected status by the government. Um, and somewhat most... Because, because of what you said earlier, actually, presumably that the... the the uh, the pharmaceuticals will argue we've spent all this money trying to develop this drug. However, there are only maybe 100 people on the whole planet that need it. And if you call open season on this drug, um, we'll never recoup our investment. Yes, I mean, that's... Uh, that's the argument, right? That is the argument, which is, which is true, um, mm-hmm. which is actually true. But the thing is that historically, at least before the financiers came into the pharma space, um, the idea is that those drugs are not necessarily for profit, right? It's supposed to be a social good. And many times you would have subsidies making um, making uh, the coverage. So at least it's not a loss to the companies who are providing that service, right? But that right. has recently changed in the sense that now what has happened is that the financiers actually have seen an opportunity that the prices in this space is actually um, artificially low just because of the social good the pharma companies have tried to do. And the people mm. who need these drugs actually need them, right? It's not, they can't decide whether or not they can do without those drugs. They need to buy those drugs or they die, right? So that inelastic demand um, nature of this category of drugs is drawn in financiers like Shrekley. And now what they have done is to increase those prices by 700% in the space of six to 12 months of the takeover. And maximizing shareholder value and all that. Oh yes. But at the, at the expense of uh, social good and uh, hmm. the reputation of the industry. So so as someone who's been embedded in some of the world's largest um, pharmaceutical groups, uh, Sanofi, Roche, and so on, um, give me a sense, um, as honestly as you can, <laughs> because I'm sure you still have friends and family <laughs> in, those, in the world, but give me as, as, um, as honestly as you can an assessment of how the the actual culture of the people in the organization might not match the the sort of reputation the industry has has built are they you know i'd i'd like to imagine and maybe i'm i'm naive i'd like to imagine that the good people um in in these organizations who really want them to do what they're capable of doing in terms of like the greater good is that the case? And if so, how how difficult is it for for that for that kernel of good to sort of permeate the entire business in your in your experience? Hmm. That's a that's a very tough question, but I'll try to answer it. I would say that um, I would answer the question from two parts. First, from my hmm. my experience working with multinationals. And secondly, from my experience dealing with them, with other multinationals as a strategy consultant and as a sort of um, um, business person seeking um, collaboration. So from my experience working in the industry for those multinational companies, it's been that the vast majority of the people, especially at the senior management levels, um, are genuinely interested in um, getting getting the medicines that are required by people to them, right? Um, but oftentimes, oftentimes they usually tend to weigh in the in the business side, right? Because obviously their jobs, their livelihoods are dependent on the shareholders um, who have put them in place there. So. Um, sometimes they do tend to um, go forward with business practices that do, does not necessarily um, does not necessarily um, place the good of the people over the business. Right? Um, mm. I think if there's a decision to make between doing good versus making profit, most people would go for making profit at least at the Mm. more senior levels. But usually at the junior levels, especially when the guys come in and they are recruiting 
professional healthcare people who have gone to school and studied and become professional pharmacists or healthcare professionals who are then deciding that they want to go into business, they are much more green, right? They're much more, hey, I'm going in here. It's not just about me making a living. I'm also trying to um, do good um, through my professional calling, right? So right. that changes as they go through the, um, the, the promotion process into management, right? So that is, that is how I see it, at least from my experience. Now, from outside of the industry, as a strategy consultant, um, as an entrepreneur trying to collaborate with the big guys, um, I see that there are actually two distinct groups of pharmaceutical companies. Now, there are those mm. pharmaceutical companies that are set up and run by scientists, right? And then there are those pharmaceutical groups that historically were set up and run by scientists, but over a course of 50, 100 years, have now, um, the management is now being run by business people, right? For right. those companies that are still being run, set up by the scientists, most of them actually are in the biotech space today, right? So you'll be talking of the likes right. of Gilead, um, Vertex. Now, these guys are, are pioneering new approaches to using um, biological molecules for drug treatment, right? And many of them are really, really, really passionate about the science, right? They're really, really passionate about science. Now, do compare that versus the very old uh, pharma multinationals that are still doing primarily with um, very large stack of cash. They need to be able to ensure this cash is uh, turning around properly. They need to do the takeovers, the buyouts, so that they can keep that cash moving around. Um, their pipelines are dwindling, right? Because um, pure organic chemistry is not really producing as much uh, progress in terms of drug treatment as it used to do in the past. So they actually are now beginning to look for more um, takeover targets in the biological space, right? These guys are purely financiers. Most of them are purely financiers, right? It's about how do you keep this business sustainable? How do you uh, ensure that the research team is not just doing research and wasting our money, that they're actually turning around um, the pipeline very quickly? How do we lay off a number of um, factories? How do we do mergers? And you will see that over the last three years, there's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions. That's definitely been a huge trend I've, I've observed, yeah. Exactly. And when these mergers happen, a number of the factories are shut down. The synergies are, uh, are maximized, right? So it's not so In much the pursuit about, of efficiencies. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So yeah. um, that's, yeah. that's, how it, that's how you would sort of analyze the industry as it is today. That is fascinating. Yes, it that is. That is absolutely fascinating. Now, I'm, shameless plug here. Um, my wife, um, her name is Taviso Masugu, and uh, she's part of a team at the Health Economics and Epidemiology uh, Research Office that, that falls under the VITS Health Consortium. And she's um, recently helped uh, the National Department of Health in South Africa cost the impact of replacing uh, a, a drug called Efiverens yeah. uh, with uh, dolutegravir um, yeah. as the first line antiretroviral treatment for adults in South Africa. Yeah. And I have sights on, on, on this industry from the perspective of sort of public health and um, academic research that's done in, in order to, to help uh, governments like that of South Africa make better decisions around one, what kind of drugs to, to roll out as part of their sort of interventions and, and national healthcare plans, um, but also sort of cost in such, you know, said interventions and rollouts. So give me a sense of how the dynamic you've described would interact with, with public health in, in this context. Well, I can't assume that you know the drugs, but I mean, in the context of drugs that might end up in, in public use through, you know, public health systems, for example. How do public health systems interact with the dynamic you've described? Oh, yes. Um, so I'm quite aware about the two drugs you've mentioned there in the category of um, antiretroviral drugs, right? Um, Favirant has for a long time been in use. Has, did I even pronounce it right? Did I get it right? Yes, you did. Favirant, it's okay. uh, one okay. of the very first-generation drugs useful as, an, as ARV, right? But it has a number of side effects. I guess that's why they're trying mm. to do... Um, the yeah. transfer. But the thing is that yeah. uh, going to the question that you're asking, right, it's that 
Many times when the public health systems interact with the the pharma space, there are two contending forces, right? The one force on the on the public health side is that um, the governments, especially in Africa, are um, tight on cash, and so they usually want to be able to get as much bang for the buck as possible um, when they're negotiating, right? Um, on the other end is that the very big multinationals, right, depending on what job category they're dealing with, do not necessarily see Africa as the prime market, right? So usually it's not usually a two-way or sort of bilateral conversation. It's usually three-way. There would be a third party in the form of a foundation like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that says, mm-hmm. hey, um, you, this government, tell us exactly the total amount of drugs you need in a year. We'll cover all or a part of those costs. And then all the pharma guys have to do is to bring it in. right? So to a large extent, the public sector, at least in terms of interaction with the public sector in Africa, in terms of its interaction with the multinational um, pharma companies, is, is not necessarily a pure market play. Right, because uh, it's intermediated. Exactly, it's it's, it's um, sort of uh, facilitated with by subsidies and um, a number of grants. So the incentives are uh, very very different for the pharma companies. Right, they the most important thing for them is that um, they somebody pays for those drugs at a price that makes sense. Right, while they also maximize the public relations so that they, they it appears that. Um, they are doing as much good as possible for a region of the world that is seen to be very poor, right? So right. That, that, that's how I understand um, yeah. the interaction takes place. Now, um, if you took that out, if we then remove the, I mean, if we went out of the public health sector in Africa and looked into the private market, because there is a private right. market, and people pay. Well, a significant one, I suppose. Yes. Um, to listeners, you know, to everyone listening to us who's not familiar with um, the terrain, uh, of course, Africa being a very large continent with many different markets and many dynamics. But by and large, um, in many cases, uh, you know, there's either a very poor sort of public health infrastructure or in in some cases still none at all. Uh, in the case of uh, one of the, you know, uh, in, in the case of sort of uh, leading economies on the continent, you have a thriving p- private sector um, that that services a fair chunk of the population, not by any means the majority of the population, but nonetheless a very lucrative, uh, you know, private sector business within health, public health, as it were, in operation. So, yes, uh, just to set the context before you carry on. Yeah. Yes, I mean, that's a very good um, context setting. Uh, yes, there is a very large private market, at least in Nigeria, for example. Um, easily over 70% of the pharma transactions happen out of pocket, right? And sure. um, people actually pay for those medicines. And in those private markets, especially when you're now looking at some of the more lucrative categories like oncology, right, where people pay... Um, they almost pay the same market prices that you would see in the U.S. as in Africa. There are no subsidies, no sort of local arrangements to lower the prices, right? That's when the business then gets interesting, right? You see, um, rather than the pharma multinationals having just a sort of fly-in, fly-out business model, they actually have a full-fledged um, market development presence in those countries, right? They have the Mm. management team, they have sales office, they have local distributors, they engage with the oncologists or the medical professionals, Um, they engage with the patients, they're actually fully on the ground um, doing the commercial commercial development in the space, right? So um, the incentives change, um, just sort of flip over. Right. Once you take move out of the public health system to the private sector, where especially in those categories that are um, very lucrative, right. So yeah. this is how, say, the interaction is uh, at least uh, when looking at it 
from an African perspective. So give me a sense of how a private citizen would interact with that dynamic. Um, let's assume, God forbid, <laughs> I'm a cancer patient in Lagos and, um, and my oncologist has prescribed medication. Um, let's assume that I'm also, uh, in addition to, to, medita- to, to medication and treatment that I'm, I'm receiving orally, I'm, I'm also maybe, uh, I'm also scheduled for, for regular chemo sessions, etc. So how, how would it play out in that context and, you know, using that as a, a hypothetical case study? Mm. Yeah, it's a very, um, interesting case study because we at least at Arexol recently did dig deep into that oncology category in Nigeria and just sort of studied how uh, patients actually interact with the process and it's a very very interesting especially in this category it's really very interesting it's a bit different from other categories but it's hmm. it's uh, very interesting so I'll walk you through how how it works right so Usually what happens is that many people present late stage on this part of the world with their, um, with the cancer situation, right? Because many times when they begin to have the same, there's not, first of all, there are no regular health checks. People only take care of their health when they're sick, right? And then when they realize there's a persistent headache or there's a persistent pain, say in the breast, for example, or problem with urination this is when they then go out to seek um, a sort of thorough medical examination that then identifies um, the condition so many times these guys have presented late stage and by the time they present late stage it's usually late right but usually and this is just from the research we have done usually Mm. um, many times the health professionals do not tell them that their condition is is um is irreparable, right? Um, right? They do give them the hope that there's a chance they could survive, uh, which is very slim. Um, and they encourage them to go ahead with the chemo sessions. Now, many times, um, if they were sort of engaging in the public health space, these drugs would not be, would not be available. Right? Because first of all, they are too expensive for the public health systems to stock and keep. And secondly, some of them require um, um, extensive management. So you need to be able to keep the temperature properly. You need to be able to store properly. And if you look at it that, say, for example, in Nigeria, many of these public health institutions don't have power, right? Even if they had the generator, it was working maybe uh, six hours a day. So Mm. the sense of the pharmacy professionals is, hey, there's no point stuck in this. Right, and also if you look at the the sort of people, the majority of the people who are diagnosed with a condition, right, they will usually be in the low income brackets, and it's mm. unlikely they'll be able to afford it. Right. Mm. So what usually happens is that for the more higher income um, people who are diagnosed, um, who can afford it, they would most most likely take two parts. The first part is that. Usually the oncologist will tell them where they can get the medicine, and that's um, directly from the multinationals distributor. So usually when the sales rep has gone and talked with the oncologist, he tells the oncologist where he can um, tell the patients to go to get the medicines, right? And then the patient... So not even pharmacies? So not even, uh, uh, you know, dispensing pharmacies? No? Directly from the manufacturer or the... Or, it, or the manufacturing uh, manufacturer's agent for the chemo for the chemo drugs that are used in session, many pharmacies don't stock it. It's too expensive to stock. Right, right. Easily, right. any right. of those drugs can account for about ten percent of the total inventory of an average pharmacy in Nigeria. Wow. Right. Okay. So again, I suppose at this point, I, I'm starting to see um, how. Uh, the scenario might be very different for something less severe, or you know, like perhaps. Uh, diabetic treatment, for, for yes. example, or yes. or chronic uh, high blood pressure and things like that. Yes. So if it was okay. any of the other, in fact, even if you had the oncology maintenance drugs like metotrexate, okay. for example, you can get those. Yeah. Those are rather cheap. You can get them from um, the local pharmacy. pharmacy, right? But if you're doing it with the right. more of the drugs used for the chemo sessions, usually you would have to go to the distributor 
or you would have to go to a private hospital, right, right. that can easily call on the supply when it's required, right? right. I've even seen right. a situation um, just recently, the last one month, speaking with a doctor who unfortunately has his sister with, um, she has a brain cancer. Um, mm. He actually, while she was receiving treatment here in Nigeria, she actually, he actually had to import the drug from India. Sure. Yeah, because yeah. it was too expensive. The prices he was getting locally did not make any sense, right? He actually got it for, he got it for 25% of the price he was getting wow. after importation from India. Look, this is also true in, in places like Zimbabwe, for example, where um, I live in South Africa. But it, in, in many cases, not, not just for drugs, but for medical treatment as well, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly cheaper and more efficient to come for my parents to come and have their, their annual checkups here yeah. and, and treatment here when needed. And, and I have an aunt who, ha who has a, a hip replacement surgery scheduled, but um, uh, it, it works out cheaper to, to have it done in India. So it's, it's quite interesting how these dynamics are, are mirrored in, in different African countries as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we, the health system is very similar across most of the countries, and that's because we're dealing yeah. with the... There's a, there's a one unifier across Africa, and that is that um, majority of the people are too poor to cover their own yeah. health care We're catching up, man. We're catching up. Yes. We're, there's, a, there's, a, there's a nasty legacy to, to take into account. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well. That's so true. tell me now, let, I, 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 this is a great segue, I think, into you know, your entrepreneurial pursuit in this space. Now, you know, I've, I've read that upwards of 30% of drugs on the African continent, currently being dispensed in the, on the continent, are counterfeit. And so tell me about uh, your work in, um, in helping to provide affordable and, and also quality medicines into the continent um, and, and massaging them into our mass market. Yes, so um, at RxOl, which is a startup that I co-founded, we are primarily providing a digital platform that enables patients and pharmacies order their medicines directly from, from source, right? And in addition to that, we provide an authentication service um, through our AI spectrometer to ensure that those drugs that are getting to the retailers or to the end users are actually of the um, highest possible quality. Right. Mm. And uh, what we have done with this is essentially to um, look at the supply chain situation on the continent as it is today. Right. It used to be that in the 1970s, at least in Nigeria, Nigeria had a viable local producing pharmaceutical industry mm. and a very well structured industry at that. And the incidence of fake medicines was almost zero at the time. Mm. Now, mm. we know that from the 80s, the government had to implement a number of IMF reforms that led to essentially the um, elimination of the middle class. And that in its, in its turn also made business unviable or non-viable for um, pharmaceutical producers in the country. And so right. what happened was that the uh, many of the local production companies closed up and um, the multinationals moved out. And we're currently in a current situation where all of the drugs, rather than being locally produced and the supply chain being uh, properly managed, most of the drugs are actually imported. Um, at least over seventy percent of the drugs are imported currently today from most of them from India and China. So before you carry on, and I want you to pick up exactly where you left off, but something you said has just struck a nerve. How off the cuff do you think the average professional that's eye level with you in, in Nigeria, how off the cuff might they be able to articulate the the background or to, to Nigeria's current situation as you've just described it? It's unlikely there was... Is, this, is, this, is it current? Is it common knowledge you were saying? Uh, no, no. It's, I mean, maybe in the generation that is in their 50s now, 
Um, yes, mm -hmm. they would know because they were young professionals and they knew how the industry was. But for the much younger generation, um, that's from the guys who are from 30 years down, it's unlikely they would know. Right. I, right. I got to know about this while I was at Yale and I, um, got into a conversation with an anthropologist from Berkeley, UC Berkeley, who had come to give the talk about the, um, the counterfeiting situation in Africa. Right. And mm. after discussing with her, going through her books, she had actually done, um, a major, a major research work on the continent on this, right? Mm. And so uh, it was through my conversation with her and listening to her, I realized that the current system as it is, um, is actually due to um, transnational trade of drugs, right? If we had, like in the US, where most of the medicines are actually produced locally, right? It's easier to manage that supply chain. It's easier to trace it. It's easier sure. to uh, reduce um, the supply chain breaches that you see uh, for most of Africa, right? So that was a very clear understanding of where for us, we, we thought that it, it would make sense for us to make a difference in the current situation as it is today. That is so fascinating. You have no idea how my mind's just, you know, lapping this up just <laughs> this is this is incredible well so 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 back where i sort of um asked you to pause let's talk about uh you know the specifics of how you go about from what i can tell um about your company um you pretty much double as a alternative intermediary a almost your positioning as a preferred intermediary between users of these drugs and the manufacturers of these drugs on one hand you also it sounds like you you play a role in in ensuring that the quality of supply is is well under control and, and obviously people getting the right kind of stuff at the right quality level then it also sounds as though you you are in some respect disrupting the pharmaceutical well the the pharmacy business in, in terms of like maybe trying to change people's habits in terms of how they would typically access a drug either as you described from a pharmacy or from directly from uh, an agent or uh, or something like that have i described it correctly is my understanding correct uh, if not um set me straight yes you're right um first of all um i'll take the point you made around intermediating or rather disintermediating the um the supply chain right mm -hmm. and obviously also second point you made about disrupting how how patients go about interacting with the with the pharmacy space today right so if we start with this the disintermediation right um yes the who and a number of agencies have said that 30 to 60 percent of the drugs in circulation in africa uh, fake or counterfeit. In fact, um, sorry, how much? Thirty to sixty percent. Oh my word! Okay, yes, worse than I thought. It I is. It is worse than you you thought. I mean, we we had uh, a local study done by um, by pharmacists in Lagos some three four years ago, where they were sort of um, assessing the quality of um anti-malarials so especially this category known as um, atomita lumefantrine right and they realized that 75 percent of the drugs in circulation of that particular category were, were was fake right so a number of categories actually you can see up to 90 percent fake right because what happens is that the guys realize that there is a high demand for that item right and they flood the market with um with a fake of that item, right? But if you talk about that disintermediation, it's it's also that you realize that it's not uniform across all the locations. So if you went to the much more um, rich areas of Lagos, you probably would not find any fake medicine anywhere, right? Because those pharmacies, uh, possibly in a chain, right? The rich people know where to go get their medicines from, those highbrow pharmacies and those highbrow pharmacies get their medicines directly from source, right? So to a large extent, um, the people who actually suffer 
from the fake medicines are usually the middle-income people, right? Because for one, they are the ones who seek medical health care. They are the ones who can pay for the service, right? Usually the poor would not seek medical health care. They would go to the, uh, to the local herbalist or the local witch doctor, right? And it's only when they, they are very sick, they will then go into the formal health system. So to a large extent, the people who actually suffer are middle-class people, right? And they suffer because um, they usually have to deal with multiple pharmacies, right? And each of those multiple pharmacies are not essentially uh, properly regulated by... Mm. Off the government. grid pharmacies, as it were. Oh yeah, there are number there are a number of off grid pharmacies, but there are also actually formal pharmacies also that go to the open markets. Now the open markets are usually the major source of these bad drugs, right? But these pharmacies go into the open market. They are professional people, but they go into the open market because there is a general belief that the prices um, in those open markets are better. And because people who come into a pharmacy usually would be thinking about, hey, this item I'm buying from you, it's 50 bucks cheaper elsewhere. Why should I buy from you? And so there is a price um, competition amongst those pharmacies, and that pushes most of them out of the formal distribution system into the open markets, where unwittingly they end up get, getting fake drugs, which they transfer onwards. I think patients. a lot of Africans can can relate to to the to sort of buying fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. off the off the side of the street, mm. yes, <laughs> as opposed to at the local sort of uh, you know highbrow supermarket or whatever, because you know you you'll you'll get the good deal. Mm. Um, it's uh, quite interesting to me to 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 hear that uh, that dynamic might exist in, in Nigeria, for example, when it comes to to medicine. Oh, yes. Um, it exists across most of West Africa, um, right. this open drug market. If you went to Ghana, you would see the same thing, right? The same mm. way you buy... So I can, I can, I can, you know, the same way I'd buy my tomatoes or bananas. Oh, yes. That's how you would buy drugs. That's how it works. Wow. Right. Wow. So this is, this is actually where you find uh, most of the bad medicines in, in there. Right. So that's that's one of the situations. The other one is also that many a number increasingly we're seeing a number of pharmacies being um, run on a sort of register and go basis. So usually the le- I mean, the legislation as it is today is that you cannot run a pharmacy without a pharmacy's license. So what does that mean? It means that all pharmacies normally should be run by professional people who understand, who have sworn an oath right to selling only the best medicines and providing pharmaceutical care, right? But increasingly, what we have seen is that because some of the brightest pharmacies realized that they could make more um, returns working maybe in banking or um, in other industries, right? Mm. They usually would... And working for pharmaceuticals. <laughs> yes, right. So they usually would not... You would see them that they usually would have that license free and you don't have enough... Um, community pharmacies set up, right? But what has happened is that the guys who usually do the importation, the traders essentially who do the importation of the drugs, who sell most of these drugs in the open markets, who also are thinking long-term about a possible regulatory shutdown of those open markets in the future, have realized that there's a gap in the community space, uh, in the retail space. And so they're paying very good money um, very good amounts of to money. To use someone else's license? Yes, to use a young pharmacy's license. And the young pharmacy's essentially is just a front, but actually the mm. traders are the ones running those things. And oh. so there's, there is no barrier between the bad drugs they bring in from importation and selling through those pharmacy outlets directly. Right. That is until now, right? Yes. <laughs> until RxR. Yes, until RxR has come into play. Until RxR. So, exactly. so tell me now who um who makes doing what you do worth your while? How, how what is your model? How does it and how does it I so you've made a, a really eloquent case of painting the the picture of of what the need is and 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 why 
even I'm sitting here grateful you guys exist on some <laughs> level. Yes. So give me a sense of how it, it ends up being worth your while to, to exist. Oh, yes. Um, firstly, is um, before I go into the profit piece of it, um, there's a social mission. So we're not just a for-profit business. Um, as you would know from any um, yearly who is worth his while, um, usually we're very, very, uh, we're usually thinking about the society, about light and truth, about how we can make a difference to our own corner of the world, right? So in that aspect, we have seen that fulfillment of just being able to provide <coughs> um, high-quality medicines to people who need them, and also medicines required during emergencies, right? Because sometimes you see in some locations, the guys can have been looking for the medicine for like two, three days. Somebody tells them about Arexol. The patient is almost gasping to death. Right. And then we deliver the medicines just in time. Right. Right. Just because of that information asymmetry in the market, we have sort of helped to solve that problem. And so on that social mission piece of it, uh, I would say it's been it's been a very good um, it's been satisfactory to us on that piece of it. Now, in terms of the sustainability of the mod of the model itself, the way we work um, is that we identify a few number of pharmacies, right, um, that are professionally run. Uh, we go through their distribution system. They have the very good records of who they buy their medicines from, how they price those medicines. Right. And these become our partners on the platform. Right. And then what we do is to digitize. I mean, it's essentially to set up those pharmacies on our platform. Right. And then you as a patient, once you order, um, usually we will serve you from the closest pharmacy um, to you. And we bring the delivery directly to you in your home or in your office. Right. Before it gets to you, we use our AI spectrometer to test the drug, right? To be sure that it's within the parameters. So sometimes it's not just about the fact that the drug has been directly faked. There could also be a quality issue where the manufacturer has produced um, a poor batch or handling and storage processes down the line to the pharmacy has denatured or degraded the drug. Right. And so um, we, with our authentication, um, our AI spectrometer, our authentication system, is goes beyond just identifying and mopping up the fake drugs. It's also ensuring that what you get is good enough to consume. Right. And right. so is, is this is this um, uh, technology, is it proprietary or is this uh, is, is it commonplace in your industry? Give me a sense. It is proprietary. Um, okay. We are so far the only ones who have built um, a machine learning platform for drug authentication in the world. Right. Right. Wow. Um, in addition, the spectrometer we have developed um, is also proprietary. We have built this in-house. Uh, my co-founder is a PhD um, graduate from Yale, um, from the School of Chemistry there. And um, together we have designed... The spectrometer is actually five times cheaper than um, all the alternatives currently in the market today. Wow. Right. And, and what's your what's your co-founder's name? Um, Wei Wei Liu. Wei Liu is um, he's Chinese American, right? So um, the design of that spectrometer is proprietary. It's um, easily the cheapest spectrometer of its type in the market today. And Do you guys license that technology, or is it unique to you? So currently now we are in um, some licensing discussions with a major multinational in Malaysia. Um, hmm. So yes, um, I was recently in Malaysia. Beautiful country. Yes, it is. It is a very good country. Very beautiful, and it's interesting that spread if, the love, man. Spread the love. Yes, <laughs> and it is interesting that actually in the region where it sits in Southeast Asia, right, hmm. they also have very high levels of counterfeiting. Right? Oh, that I definitely know, having um, grown up. Well, part of my childhood, uh, spent part of my childhood in, in Southeast Asia. When At the time I lived in the Philippines with my family, wow. you pretty much could roll up to uh, any street side pharmacist, pharmacy and, 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 and grab it, pretty much anything without a prescription. Yes. So it's very at the similar. time. I'm not saying that's what it is right now, but I, I definitely know there's a booming 
in many Southeast Asian countries is a booming black market for for medicines and 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 a relatively loosely regulated pharma you know uh, chemists and, and pharmacy uh, situation. Mm. Yes, that's a. Yeah. It's very very similar. We have done an assessment of that market. It's very similar to Africa, um, and even this licensing discussion we're having with this multinational. It's the idea being that we intend to install the AI spectrometers in those pharmacies, right? And then the patients can actually do the testing. And because the testing, and this is where our our device, our platform is unique, is that the testing can be monitored real time, right? So if, if I gave you that spectrometer in South Africa, it was somebody else was using it in Indonesia, somebody else was using it in Lagos, right? The manufacturer can actually see in real time the quality of his medicines in each of those countries, right? And um, the software platform is able to, to integrate the results and say, hey, in this particular location, we're seeing a number of fake medicines of your drug. We think you need to take action in this location. And that... And in a similar way to yeah. how, you know, uh, plane manufacturers like Airbus keep tabs on, on every plane they've ever created. Exactly. Uh, remotely. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. this is the strength okay. of that application on that side, on the more upstream end of the supply chain, right? We're having that conversation separately. But in Africa, yeah, in Africa, Arexol is going directly um, to the patient, right? Where Because we know that um, the, the real, real, real challenge in Africa is that um, patients usually, there's information asymmetry about where to get good quality medicines, Right. And if patients know where to get good quality medicines, they would go for it directly. Where for you is the biggest sort of commercial opportunity for, for RxOl? Yeah, the, the biggest commercial opportunity um, in terms of pure dollar play is the AI, yeah. is the AI spectrometer licensing. Right. Because right. that is global. Right. We can yeah. we can do that globally across the world. Right. Yeah. But in Africa, in terms of impact, right, the current platform we have in place right, is the, is the go-to approach. Uh, but beyond that is also that uh, it's also massively scalable. Yeah. I was going to say, like, you must have plans to, to roll out to, to the rest of the continent yes. or at least start out in, in, in other parts of West Africa. Yeah. So we, we recently concluded the Merck Accelerator in Kenya. And mm. we are actually, we, this week, actually, we're actually concluding our incorporation in Kenya. And we have nice. a local investor who's putting a number, a very good, a decent chunk of dollar um, investment into the Kenyan company. And an angel, an angel, a, a Nigerian angel? No, it's a Kenyan angel. Nice. Yes. Yeah, so we, and then we're also having a local partner there too, as well in Nairobi, who will be working with us. Right. So yes, that's the plan. It's it's massively scalable because if you compare in terms of the of the actual dollar figure of what we can make, right? The licensing is where it is. But in terms of scale, right, there's only a few number of manufacturing companies in the world, right? Yes. Um, but versus if you had a billion Africans using this platform, right? And yes. it gives us the opportunity to reshape the whole industry, this is the part, the second point you made about disruption, right? To yeah. ship the whole industry because we know today that um, there's an emerging e-commerce um, ecosystem, but that ecosystem deals primarily with consumer products, right? We probably will be one of the first two, three, four, five in on the continent that is now bringing that digital innovation into. Um, healthcare, right? Where look, and I mean to your point, my wife and I are early adopters relative to the rest of of Africa in as far as e-commerce is concerned, and I say that not as a point of pride, really, just as a, a matter of reality, given how most of the continent is yet to connect. Um, and so, my wife and I buy a lot of our, our, our stuff online, and if there was one thing I wouldn't comfortably buy online yet. Um, except perhaps from a, from directly from a from an existing sort of big brand pharmacy that I trusted is, is medication. I, I certainly wouldn't. I'm not at the comfort level where I'd order medication from Amazon, for example, or if that's even possible. I, I get. I, so I, I totally take your point in that. In that, 
um, you, this is a, this is the perfect time for you guys to position in shaping consumer habits or next generation consumer habits as 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 Africa comes digital. Yes, yes, and, that, and in fact, this this point you have made about the the weariness of buying medicines online, except you're dealing with a reputable brand, is one of the reasons why we have taken the um, sort of marketplace approach where. We're essentially working with a number of well-known, reputable pharmacy brands, right? Yeah. And, and to kind of answer the, the the final question, I wanted to, and um, I'll let you finish because I think you're on your way to answering what I'd like to be my final question, which is, so I understand uh, who and what I should be wary of hmm. uh, in terms of what's out there, given you know all the everything we've discussed. Well, how how do I know I can trust RxOr? Yeah, I mean, for for one, I mean, there, there are two reasons why you can trust us. Um, the first is that we are essentially working with your reputable pharmacy brand in the country, right? And what we're providing to you is all of the quality that brand provides to the richest segment of your society, right? We're making that commonplace. We're making that available also to the mass market, right? From the comfort of your home or your office, Right, you don't have to travel twenty kilometers out of your neighborhood to go to a rich location in order to patronize the same quality that other rich citizens in your country get. Right, we bring that quality directly to you. That's the first. Right, the second is that we are the very existence of RxOr is to bring safe medicines to people to patients. That is our existence. It's not profit. Right, profit comes after, and so. We are taking that extra approach. We have a an R&D, an R&D team that is building out um, the world's first machine learning platform for drug authentication, right? We have um, professionals who are in, in country working to ensure that the pharmacy partners who are onboarded have a reliable supply chain end-to-end. Right, and we go the extra mile to authenticate those medicines that you buy on the platform before getting into you. Right, we don't use third-party logistic partners. All, right? all of this is in-house. Right, so from the point of the manufacturer onto the partner pharmacy, through to us and you, eventually to you, we can trace where your drugs has coming from, and so that security is assured. Right. And so this is why um, any patient who goes to Arexol and decides to order, um, currently in Nigeria, very soon in Kenya, um, you can be sure of the high quality of the medicines that you'll be getting. Hmm. Wow. This was meant to be a half an hour <laughs> conversation <laughs> at, at most. Um, we're, pushing, we're pushing nearly an hour. And every, you know, every minute you've, you've given me, I've absolutely relished. All I can say is all the best to you. Uh, we'll be watching the, the sky for your rise. And, and yeah, thank you for, for making time to, to, to be on the African Tech Roundup, man. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Andele, for having me.